Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 133. The Shoes That Were Danced to Pieces There was once upon a time a king who had twelve daughters, each more beautiful than the other. They all slept together in one chamber, in which their beds stood side by side, and every night, when they were in them, the king locked the door and bolted it. But in the morning, when he unlocked the door, he saw that their shoes were worn out with dancing, and no one could find out how that had come to pass. Then the king caused it to be proclaimed, that whosoever could discover where they danced at night should choose one of them for his wife and be king after his death, but that whosoever came forward and had not discovered it within three days and nights should have forfeited his life. It was not long before a king's son presented himself and offered to undertake the enterprise. He was well received, and in the evening was led into a room adjoining the princess's sleeping chamber. His bed was placed there, and he was to observe where they went and danced, and in order that they might do nothing secretly or go away to some other place, the door of their room was left open. But the eyelids of the prince grew heavy as lead, and he fell asleep, and when he awoke in the morning all twelve had been to the dance, for their shoes were standing there with holes in their soles. On the second and third nights it fell out just the same, and then his head was struck off without mercy. Many others came after this and undertook the enterprise, but all forfeited their lives. Now it came to pass that a poor soldier who had a wound and could serve no longer found himself on the road to the town where the king lived. There he met an old woman who asked him where he was going. I hardly know myself, answered he, and added in jest, I had half a mind to discover where the princesses danced their shoes into holes and thus became king. That is not so difficult, said the old woman. You must not drink the wine which will be brought to you at night and must pretend to be sound asleep. With that she gave him a little cloak and said, If you put that on, you will be invisible and then you can follow the twelve. When the soldier had received this good advice, he went into the thing in earnest, took heart, went to the king, and announced himself as a suitor. He was as well received as the others, and royal garments were put upon him. He was conducted that evening at bedtime into the antechamber, And as he was about to go to bed, the elders came and brought him a cup of wine. But he had tied a sponge under his chin, and let the wine run down into it without drinking a drop. Then he lay down, and when he had lain a while, he began to snore, as if in the deepest sleep. The twelve princesses heard that, and laughed, and the eldest said, 
he too might as well have saved his life. With that they got up, opened wardrobes, presses, cupboards, and brought out pretty dresses, dressed themselves before the mirrors, sprang about and rejoiced at the prospect of the dance. Only the youngest said, I know not how it is, you are very happy, but I feel very strange. Some misfortune is certainly about to befall us. You are a goose, who are always frightened, said the eldest. Have you forgotten how many king's sons have already come here in vain? I had hardly any need to give the soldier a sleeping potion. In any case, the clown would not have awakened. When they were all ready, they looked carefully at the soldier, but he had closed his eyes and did not move or stir, so they felt themselves quite secure. The eldest then went to her bed and tapped it. It immediately sank into the earth, and one after the other they descended through the opening, the eldest going first. The soldier, who had watched everything, tarried no longer, put on his little cloak, and went down last with the youngest. Halfway down the steps he just trod a little on her dress. She was terrified at that, and cried out, What is that? Who is pulling my dress? Don't be so silly, said the eldest. You have caught it on a nail. Then they went all the way down, and when they were at the bottom, they were standing in a wonderfully pretty avenue of trees, all the leaves of which were of silver, and shone and glistened. The soldier thought, I must carry a token away with me, and broke off a twig from one of them, on which the tree cracked with a loud report. The youngest cried out again, Something is wrong. Did you hear the crack? But the eldest said, It is a gun fired for joy, because we have got rid of our prince so quickly. After that, they came into an avenue where all the leaves were of gold, and lastly, into a third, where they were of bright diamonds. He broke off a twig from each, which made such a crack each time that the youngest started back in terror, but the eldest still maintained that they were salutes. They went on and came to a great lake whereon stood twelve little boats, and in every boat sat a handsome prince, all of whom were waiting for the twelve, and each took one of them with him, but the soldier seated himself by the youngest. Then her prince said, I can't tell why the boat is so much heavier today. I shall have to row with all my strength if I am to get it across. What should cause that, said the youngest, but the warm weather. I feel very warm too. On the opposite side of the lake, stood a splendid brightly lit castle from whence resounded the joyous music of trumpets and kettle drums. They rode over there, entered, and each prince danced with the girl he loved, but the soldier danced with them unseen, 
And when one of them had a cup of wine in her hand, he drank it up so that the cup was empty when she carried it to her mouth. The youngest was alarmed at this, but the eldest always made her be silent. They danced there till three o'clock in the morning, when all the shoes were danced into holes, and they were forced to leave off. The princes rowed them back again over the lake, and this time the soldier seated himself by the eldest. On the shore they took leave of their princes and promised to return the following night. When they reached the stairs, the soldier ran on in front and lay down in his bed, and when the twelve had come up slowly and wearily, he was already snoring so loudly that they could all hear him, and they said, So far as he is concerned, we are safe. They took off their beautiful dresses, laid them away, put the worn-out shoes under the bed, and lay down. Next morning the soldier was resolved not to speak, but to watch the wonderful goings-on, and again went with them. Everything was done just as it had been done the first time, and each time they danced until their shoes were worn to pieces. But the third time he took a cup away with him as a token, when the hour had arrived for him to give his answer, he took the three twigs and the cup and went to the king. But the twelve stood behind the door and listened for what he was going to say. When the king put the question, Where have my twelve daughters danced their shoes to pieces in the night? He answered, In an underground castle with twelve princes. And related, how it had come to pass, and brought out the tokens. The king then summoned his daughters and asked them if the soldier had told the truth, and when they saw that they were found out and that lies would be of no use, they were obliged to confess all. Thereupon the king asked which of them he would have to wife. He answered, I am no longer young, so give me the eldest. Then the wedding was celebrated on the same day, and the kingdom was promised him after the king's death. But the princes were bewitched for as many days as they had danced nights with the twelve. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 134. The Six Servants Long ago there lived an aged queen who was a sorceress, and her daughter was the most beautiful maiden under the sun. The old woman, however, had no other thought than how to lure mankind to destruction, and when a wooer appeared... She said that whosoever wished to have her daughter must first perform a task, or die. Many had been dazzled by the daughter's beauty, and had actually risked this, but they never could accomplish what the old woman required them to do, and so no mercy was shown. They had to kneel down, and their heads were struck off. A certain king's son, who had also heard of the maiden's beauty, said to his father, Let me go there. I want to demand her in marriage. Never, 
answered the king. If you were to go, it would be going to your death. On this the son lay down and was sick unto death. And for seven years he lay there, and no physician could heal him. When the father perceived that all hope was over, with a heavy heart he said to him, Go there, and try your luck, for I know no other means of curing you. When the son heard that, he rose from his bed and was well again, and joyfully set out on his way. And it came to pass that as he was riding across a pasture, he saw from afar something like a great heap of hay lying on the ground. And when he drew nearer, he could see that it was the stomach of a man who had laid himself down there, but the stomach looked like a small mountain. When the fat man saw the traveller, he stood up and said, If you are in need of anyone, take me into your service. The prince answered, What can I do with such a great big man? Oh, said the stout one, this is nothing. When I stretch myself out, I am three thousand times fatter. If that's the case, said the prince, I can make use of you. Come with me. So the stout one followed the prince, and after a while they found another man who was lying on the ground with his ear laid to the turf. What are you doing there? asked the king's son. I am listening, replied the man. What are you listening to so attentively? I'm listening to what is just going on in the world, for nothing escapes my ears, I even hear the grass growing. Tell me, said the prince, what you hear at the court of the old queen who has the beautiful daughter. Then he answered, I hear the whizzing of the sword that is striking off a wooer's head. The king's son said, I can make use of you, come with me. They went onwards, and then they saw a pair of feet lying and part of a pair of legs, but could not see the rest of the body. When they had walked on for a great distance, they came to the body and at last to the head also. Why, said the prince, what a tall rascal you are. Oh, replied the tall one, that is nothing at all. Yet, when I really stretch out my limbs, I am three thousand times as tall and taller than the highest mountain on earth. I will gladly enter your service if you will take me. Come with me, said the prince. I can make use of you. They went onwards and found a man sitting by the road who had bound up his eyes. The prince said to him, Have you weak eyes that you cannot look at the light? No, replied the man, but I must not remove the bandage, for whatsoever I look at with my eyes splits to pieces. My glance is so powerful. If you can use that, I shall be glad to serve you. Come with me, replied the king's son. I can make use of you. They journeyed onwards and found a man who was lying in the hot sunshine, trembling and shivering all over his body, so that not a limb was still. How can you shiver when the sun is shining so warm, said the king's son. Alack, replied the man, I am of quite a different nature. The hotter it is, the colder I am, and the frost pierces through all my bones, and the colder it is, the hotter I am. In the middle of ice I cannot endure the heat, nor in the middle of fire the cold. 
"'You are a strange fellow,' said the prince. "'But if you will enter my service, follow me.' "'They travelled onwards and saw a man standing "'who made a long neck and looked about him "'and could see over all the mountains. "'What are you looking at so eagerly?' said the king's son. "'The man replied, "'I have such sharp eyes that I can see "'into every forest and field and hill and valley.' all over the world. The prince said, Come with me, if you will, for I am still in want of such a person. And now the king's son and his six servants came to the town where the aged queen dwelt. He did not tell her who he was, but said, If you will give me your beautiful daughter, I will perform any task you set me. The sorceress was delighted to get such a handsome youth as this into her net, and said, I will set you free tasks, and if you are able to perform them all, you shall be husband and master of my daughter. What is the first to be? You shall fetch me my ring which I have dropped into the Red Sea. So the king's son went home to his servants and said, The first task is not easy. A ring is to be got out of the Red Sea. Come, find some way of doing it. Then the man with the sharp sight said, I will see where it is lying, and looked down into the water and said, It is sticking there on a pointed stone. The tall one carried them there and said, I would soon get it out if I could only see it. Oh, is that all? cried the stout one, and lay down and put his mouth to the water, on which all the waters fell into it just as if it had been a whirlpool, and he drank up the whole sea till it was dry as a meadow. The tall one stooped down a little and brought out the ring with his hand. Then the king's son rejoiced when he had the ring and took it to the old queen. She was astonished and said, Yes, it is the right ring. You have safely performed the first task, but now comes the second. Do you see the meadow in front of my palace? Three hundred fat oxen are feeding there, and these must... You eat skin, hair, bones, horns and all, and down below in my cellar lie three hundred casks of wine, and these you must drink up as well. And if one hair of the oxen, or one little drop of the wine is left, your life will be forfeited to me. May I invite no guests to this repast? inquired the prince. No dinner is good without some company. The old woman laughed maliciously and replied, You may invite one for the sake of companionship, but no more. The king's son went to his servants and said to the stout one, You shall be my guest today and shall eat your fill. Hereupon the stout one stretched himself out and ate the three hundred oxen without leaving one single hair, and then he asked if he was to have nothing but his breakfast. 
He drank the wine straight from the casks without feeling any need of a glass, and he licked the last drop from his fingernails. When the meal was over, the prince went to the old woman and told her that the second task also was performed. She wondered at this and said, No one has ever done so much before, but one task still remains. And she thought to herself, You shall not escape me, and will not keep your head on your shoulders. This night, said she, I will bring my daughter to you in your chamber, and you shall put your arms round her. But when you are sitting there together, beware of falling asleep. When twelve o'clock is striking, I will come. And if she is then no longer in your arms, you are lost. The prince thought, the task is easy, I will most certainly keep my eyes open. Nevertheless, he called his servants, told them what the old woman had said, and remarked, Who knows what treachery lurks behind this? Foresight is a good thing. Keep watch and take care that the maiden does not go out of my room again. When night fell, the old woman came with her daughter and gave her into the prince's arms, and then the tall one wound himself round the two in a circle, and the stout one placed himself by the door, so that no living creature could enter. There the two sat, and the maiden spoke never a word, but the moon shone through the window on her face, and the prince could behold her wondrous beauty." He did nothing but gaze at her, and was filled with love and happiness, and his eyes never felt weary. This lasted until eleven o'clock, when the old woman cast such a spell over all of them that they fell asleep, and at the self-same moment the maiden was carried away. Then they all slept soundly until a quarter to twelve, when the magic lost its power, and all awoke again. Oh, misery and misfortune, cried the prince, now I am lost. The faithful servants also began to lament, but the listener said, Be quiet, I want to listen. Then he listened for an instant and said, She is on a rock, three hundred leagues from hence, bewailing her fate. You alone, tall one, can help her. If you will stand up, you will be there in a couple of steps. Yes, answered the tall one, but the one with the sharp eyes must go with me, that we may destroy the rock. Then the tall one took the one with bandaged eyes on his back, and in the twinkling of an eye they were on the enchanted rock. The tall one immediately took the bandage from the other's eyes, and he did but look around, and the rock shivered into a thousand pieces. Then the tall one took the maiden in his arms, carried her back in a second, then fetched his companion with the same rapidity, and before it struck twelve they were all sitting as they had sat before, quite merrily and happily. When twelve struck, the aged sorceress came stealing in with a malicious face, which seemed to say, "'Now he is mine!' for she believed that her daughter was on the rock three hundred leagues off. But when she saw her in the prince's arms, 
She was alarmed and said, Here is one who knows more than I do. She dared not make any opposition and was forced to give him her daughter. But she whispered in her ear, It is a disgrace to you to have to obey common people and that you are not allowed to choose a husband to your own liking. On this the proud heart of the maiden was filled with anger and she plotted revenge. Next morning she caused three hundred great bundles of wood to be tied together and said to the prince that though the three tasks were performed she would still not be his wife until someone was ready to seat himself in the middle of the wood and bear the fire. She thought that none of his servants would let themselves be burnt for him, and that out of love for her he himself would place himself upon it, and then she would be free. But the servants said, Every one of us has done something except the frosty one. He must set to work. And they put him in the middle of the pile and set fire to it. Then the fire began to burn, and burnt for three days, until all the wood was consumed, and when the flames had burnt out, the frosty one was standing amid the ashes, trembling like an aspen leaf, and saying, I never felt such a frost during the whole course of my life. If it had lasted much longer, I should have been frostbitten. As no other pretext was to be found, the beautiful maiden was now forced to take the unknown youth as a husband. But when they drove away to church, the old woman said, I cannot endure the disgrace, and sent her warriors after them with orders to cut down all who opposed them and bring back her daughter. But the Lina had sharpened his ears and heard the secret discourse of the old woman. What shall we do, said he to the stout one, but he knew what to do, and spat out once or twice behind the carriage some of the sea water which he had drunk, and a great sea arose in which the warriors were caught and drowned. When the sorceress perceived that, She sent her mailed knights, but the listener heard the rattling of their armour and undid the bandage from one eye of sharp eyes, who looked for a while rather fixedly at the enemy's troops, on which they all shattered to pieces like glass. Then the youth and the maiden went on their way undisturbed, And when the two had been blessed in church, the six servants took leave and said to their master, Your wishes are now satisfied. You need us no longer. We will go our way and seek our fortunes. Half a league from the palace of the prince's father was a village near which a swineherd tended his herd. And when they arrived, the prince said to his wife, Do you know who I really am? I am no prince, but a herder of swine, and the man who is there with that herd is my father. We too shall have to set to work also and help him. Then he alighted with her at the inn and secretly told the innkeepers to take away her royal apparel during the night. So when she awoke in the morning, 
She had nothing to put on, and the innkeeper's wife gave her an old gown and a pair of worsted stockings, and at the same time seemed to consider it a great present, and said, If it were not for the sake of your husband, I should have given you nothing at all. Then the princess believed that he really was a swineherd, and tended the herd with him and thought to herself, I have deserved this for my haughtiness and pride. This lasted for a week, and then she could endure it no longer, for she had sores on her feet. And now came a couple of people who asked if she knew who her husband was. Yes, she answered, he is a swineherd, and has just gone out with cords and ropes to try to drive a little bargain. But they said, just come with us and we will take you to him. And they took her up to the palace, and when she entered the hall, there stood her husband in kingly raiment. But she did not recognise him until he took her in his arms, kissed her and said, I suffered much for you, and now you too have had to suffer for me. Then the wedding was celebrated, and he who has told you all this wishes that he too had been present at it. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 135, The White Bride and the Black Bride A woman was going about the countryside with her daughter and her stepdaughter when the Lord came walking towards them in the form of a poor man and asked, Which is the way into the village? If you want to know, said the mother, seek it for yourself. The daughter added, if you are afraid, you will not find it. Take a guide with you. But the stepdaughter said, Poor man, I will take you there. Come with me. Then God was angry with the mother and daughter and turned his back on them and wished that they should become as black as night and as ugly as sin. To the poor stepdaughter, however, God was gracious and went with her, and when they were near the village, he said a blessing over her and said, Choose three things for yourself, and I will grant them to you. Then the maiden said, I should like to be as beautiful and fair as the sun. And instantly she was white and fair as day. Then I should like to have a purse of money, which would never grow empty, that the Lord gave her also. But he said, Do not forget what is best of all. Said she, For my third wish I desire after my death to inhabit the eternal kingdom of heaven. That also was granted unto her, and then the Lord left her. When the stepmother came home with her daughter and they saw that they were both as black as coal and ugly but that the stepdaughter was white and beautiful wickedness increased still more in their hearts and they thought of nothing else but how they might injure her. 
The stepdaughter, however, had a brother called Regina, whom she loved much, and she told him all that had happened. A long time ago, Regina said to her, Dear sister, I will paint your portrait, that I may continually see you before mine eyes, for my love for you is so great that I should like always to look at you. Then she answered, But I pray you, let no one see the picture. So he painted his sister, and hung up the picture in his room. He, however, dwelt in the king's palace, for he was his coachman. Every day he went and stood before the picture, and thanked God for the happiness of having such a dear sister. Now it happened that the king whom he served had just lost his wife, who had been so beautiful that no one could be found to compare with her. And on this account the king was in deep grief. The attendants about the court, however, remarked that the coachman stood daily before this beautiful picture, and they were jealous of him, so they informed the king. Then the latter ordered the picture to be brought to him, and when he saw that it was like his lost wife in every respect, except that it was still more beautiful, he fell mortally in love with it. He caused the coachman to be brought before him, and asked whom the portrait represented. The coachman said it was his sister, so the king resolved to take no one but her as his wife, and gave him a carriage and horses and splendid garments of cloth of gold, and sent him forth to fetch his chosen bride. When Regina came on this errand, his sister was glad, but the black maiden was jealous of her good fortune, and grew angry above all measure, and said to her mother, Of what use are all your arts to us now, when you cannot procure a piece of luck for me? Be quiet, said the old woman, I will soon give it to you. And by her arts of witchcraft, she so troubled the eyes of the coachman that he was half blind, and she stopped the ears of the white maiden, so that she was half deaf. Then they got into the carriage, first the bride in her noble royal apparel, then the stepmother with her daughter, and Regina sat on the box to drive. When they had been on the way for some time, the coachman cried, Cover you well, my dear sister, that the rain may not wet you, that the wind may not load you with dust, that you may be fair and beautiful when you appear before the king. The bride answered, What is my dear brother saying? Ah, said the old woman, he says that you ought to take off your golden dress and give it to your sister. Then she took it off and put it on the black maiden, who gave her in exchange for it a shabby grey gown. They drove onwards, and a short time afterwards the brother again cried, Cover you well, my sister dear, that the rain may not wet you, that the wind may not load you with dust, that you may be fair and beautiful when you appear before the king. 
The bride asked, What is my dear brother saying? Ah, said the old woman, he says that you ought to take off your golden hood and give it to your sister. So she took off the hood and put it on her sister and sat with her own head uncovered. And they drove on farther. After a while, the brother once more cried, Cover you well, my sister dear, that the rain may not wet you, that the wind may not load you with dust, that you may be fair and beautiful when you appear before the king. The bride asked, What is my dear brother saying? Ah, said the old woman, he says you must look out of the carriage. They were, however, just on a bridge which crossed deep water. When the bride stood up and leaned forward out of the carriage, they both pushed her out and she fell into the middle of the water. At the same moment that she sank, a snow-white duck arose out of the mirror-smooth water and swam down the river. The brother had observed nothing and drove the carriage on until they reached the court. Then he took the black maiden to the king as his sister and thought she really was so, because his eyes were dim and he saw the golden garments glittering. When the king saw the boundless ugliness of his intended bride, he was very angry and ordered the coachman to be thrown into a pit which was full of adders and nests of snakes. The old witch, however, knew so well how to flatter the king and deceive his eyes by her arts that he kept her and her daughter until she appeared quite endurable to him, and he really married her. One evening, when the black bride was sitting on the king's knee, a white duck came swimming up the gutter to the kitchen and said to the kitchen boy, Boy, light a fire, that I may warm my feathers. The kitchen boy did it, and lighted a fire on the hearth. Then came the duck, and sat down by it, and shook herself, and smoothed her feathers with her bill. While she was sitting and enjoying herself, she asked, What is my brother Regina doing? The scullery boy replied, he is imprisoned in the pit with adders and with snakes. Then she asked, What is the black witch doing in the house? The boy answered, She is loved by the king and happy. May God have mercy on him, said the duck, and swam forth by the sink. The next night she came again and put the same questions, and the third night also. Then the kitchen boy could bear it no longer, and went to the king and discovered all to him. The king, however, wanted to see it for himself, and next evening went there, and when the duck thrust her head in through the sink, he took his sword and cut through her neck, and suddenly she changed into a most beautiful maiden, exactly like the picture which her brother had made of her. The king was full of joy, and as she stood there quite wet, he caused splendid apparel to be brought, and had her clothed in it. 
Then she told how she had been betrayed by cunning and falsehood, and at last thrown down into the water, and her first request was that her brother should be brought forth from the pit of snakes, and when the king had fulfilled this request, he went into the chamber where the old witch was and asked, What does she deserve who does this and that? And related what had happened. Then was she so blinded that she was aware of nothing and said, She deserves to be stripped naked and put into a barrel with nails and that a horse should be harnessed to the barrel and the horse sent all over the world. All of which was done to her and to her black daughter. But the king married the white and beautiful bride and rewarded her faithful brother and made him a rich and distinguished man. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 136. Iron John There was once a king who had a great forest near his palace, full of all kinds of wild animals. One day he sent out a hunter to shoot him a deer, but he did not come back. Perhaps he has been in an accident, said the king, and the next day he sent out two more hunters who were to search for him, but they too stayed away. Then on the third day he sent for all his hunters and said, Scour the whole forest through, and do not give up until you have found all three. But of these also none came home again, and of the pack of hounds which they had taken with them, none were seen again. From then on no one would venture into the forest, and it lay there in deep stillness and solitude, and nothing was seen of it except sometimes an eagle or a hawk flying over it. This lasted for many years, when a strange hunter announced himself to the king as seeking employment and offered to go into the dangerous forest. The king, however, would not give his consent and said, It is not safe in there. I fear it would fare with you no better than with the others, and you would never come out again. The hunter replied, Lord, I will venture it at my own risk. I know nothing of fear. The hunter, therefore, went with his dog to the forest. It was not long before the dog fell in with some game on the way and wanted to pursue it, but the dog hardly had run two steps when it stood before a deep pool, could go no farther, and a naked arm stretched itself out of the water, seized it and drew it under. When the hunter saw that, he went back and fetched three men to come with buckets and bail out the water. When they could see to the bottom, there lay a wild man whose body was brown like rusty iron and whose hair hung over his face, down to his knees. They bound him with cords and led him away to the castle. 
there was great astonishment over the wild man. The king, however, had him put in an iron cage in his courtyard, and forbade the door to be opened on pain of death, and the queen herself was to take the key into her keeping, and from this time forth everyone could again go into the forest with safety. The king had a son of eight years, who was once playing in the courtyard, and while he was playing, his golden ball fell into the cage, The boy ran there and said, Give me my ball. Not till you have opened the door for me, answered the man. No, said the boy, I will not do that. The king has forbidden it, and ran away. The next day he again went and asked for his ball. The wild man said, Open my door, but the boy would not. On the third day the king had ridden out hunting, and the boy went once more and said, I cannot open the door, even if I wished, for I have not the key. Then the wild man said, It lies under your mother's pillow. You can get it there. The boy, who wanted to have his ball back, cast all thought to the winds, and brought the key. The door opened with difficulty, and the boy pinched his fingers. When it was open, the wild man stepped out, gave him the golden ball, and hurried away. The boy had become afraid. He called and cried after him, O wild man, do not go away, or I shall be beaten. The wild man turned back, took him up, set him on his shoulder, and went with hasty steps into the forest. When the king came home, he observed the empty cage and asked the queen how that had happened. She knew nothing about it and sought the key, but it was gone. She called the boy, but no one answered. The king sent out people to look for him in the fields, but they did not find him. Then he could easily guess what had happened, and much grief reigned in the royal court. When the wild man had once more reached the dark forest, he took the boy down from his shoulder and said to him, You will never see your father and mother again, but I will keep you with me, for you have set me free, and I have compassion on you. If you do all I ask you, you shall fare well. Of treasure and gold have I enough, and more than anyone in the world." He made a bed of moss for the boy on which he slept, and the next morning the man took him to a well and said, Behold, the gold well is as bright and clear as crystal. You shall sit beside it, and take care that nothing falls into it, or it will be polluted. I will come every evening to see if you have obeyed my order. The boy placed himself by the edge of the well, and often saw a golden fish or a golden snake show itself inside and took care that nothing fell in. As he was sitting, his finger hurt him so violently that he involuntarily put it in the water. He drew it quickly out again, but saw that it was quite gilded, and whatsoever pains he took to wash the gold off again, all was to no purpose. In the evening, Iron John came back, looked at the boy, and said, What has happened to the well? 
Nothing, nothing, he answered, and held his finger behind his back, that the man might not see it. But he said, You have dipped your finger into the water. This time it may pass, but take care you do not again let anything go in. By daybreak the boy was already sitting by the well and watching it. His finger hurt him again, and he passed it over his head, and then unhappily a hair fell down into the well. He took it quickly out, but it was already quite gilded. Iron John came and already knew what had happened. You have let a hair fall into the well, he said. I will allow you to watch by it once more, but if this happens for the third time, then the well is polluted and you can no longer remain with me. On the third day, the boy sat by the well and did not stir his finger, however much it hurt him. But the time was long to him, and he looked at the reflection of his face on the surface of the water. And as he still bent down more and more while he was doing so, and trying to look straight into the eyes, his long hair fell down from his shoulders into the water. He raised himself up quickly, but the whole of the hair of his head was already golden and shone like the sun. You may imagine how terrified the poor boy was. He took his pocket handkerchief and tied it round his head, in order that the man might not see it. When he came, he already knew everything and said, Take the handkerchief off. Then the golden hair streamed forth and let the boy excuse himself as he might. It was of no use. You have not stood the trial and can stay here no longer. Go forth into the world. There you will learn what poverty is. But as you have not a bad heart, and as I mean well by you, there is one thing I will grant you. If you fall into any difficulty, come to the forest and cry, Iron John, and then I will come and help you. My power is great, greater than you think, and I have gold and silver in abundance. Then the king's son left the forest and walked by beaten and unbeaten paths for a long time until at last he reached a great city. There he looked for work, but could find none, and he had learned nothing by which he could help himself. At length he went to the palace and asked if they would take him in. The people about court did not at all know what use they could make of him, but they liked him and told him to stay. The cook took him into his service and said he might carry wood and water and rake the cinders together. Once, when it so happened that no one else was at hand, the cook ordered him to carry the food to the royal table, but as he did not like to let his golden hair be seen, he kept his little cap on. Such a thing as that had never yet come under the king's notice, and he said, When you come to the royal table, you must take your hat off. He answered, Ah, Lord, I cannot. I have a bad sore place on my head. 
Then the king had the cook called before him and scolded him and asked how he could take such a boy as that into his service and that he was to turn him away at once. The cook, however, had pity on him and exchanged him for the gardener's boy. And now the boy had to plant and water the garden, hoe and dig and bear the wind and bad weather. Once in summer, when he was working alone in the garden, the day was so warm he took his little cap off that the air might cool him. As the sun shone on his hair it glittered and flashed so that the rays fell into the bedroom of the king's daughter and up she sprang to see what that could be. Then she saw the boy and cried to him, Boy, bring me a wreath of flowers. He put his cap on with all haste and gathered wild field flowers and bound them together. When he was ascending the stairs with them, the gardener met him and said, How can you take the king's daughter a garland of such common flowers? Go quickly and get another and seek out the prettiest and rarest. Oh no, replied the boy, the wild ones have more scent and will please her better. When he got into the room, the king's daughter said, Take your cap off. It is not seemly to keep it on in my presence. He again said, I may not, I have a sore head. She, however, caught at his cap and pulled it off, and then his golden hair rolled down on his shoulders, and it was splendid to behold. He wanted to run out, but she held him by the arm, and gave him a handful of gold coins. With these he departed, and he cared nothing for the gold pieces. He took them to the gardener, and said, I present them to your children. They can play with them. The following day the king's daughter again called to him that he was to bring her a wreath of field flowers, and when he went in with it, she instantly snatched at his cap and wanted to take it away from him but he held it fast with both hands. She again gave him a handful of coins, but he would not keep them, and gave them to the gardener for playthings for his children. On the third day, things went just the same. She could not get his cap away from him, and he would not have her money. Not long afterwards, the country was overrun by war. The king gathered together his people and did not know whether or not he could offer any opposition to the enemy who was superior in strength and had a mighty army. Then said the gardener's boy, I am grown up and will go to the wars also. Only give me a horse. The others laughed and said, Seek one for yourself. When we are gone we will leave one behind us in the stable for you. When they had gone forth, he went into the stable and got the horse out. It was lame of one foot and limped hobbledy jig, hobbledy jig. Nevertheless, he mounted it and rode away to the dark forest. When he came to the outskirts, he called Iron John three times so loudly that it echoed through the trees. Thereupon the wild man appeared immediately and said, What do you desire? I want a strong steed, for I am going to the wars. That you shall have, 
and still more than you ask for. Then the wild man went back into the forest, and it was not long before a stable boy came out of it, who led a horse that snorted with its nostrils and could hardly be restrained, and behind them followed a great troop of soldiers entirely equipped in iron, and their swords flashed in the sun. The youth made over his free-legged horse to the stable boy, mounted the other, and rode at the head of the soldiers. When he got near the battlefield, a great part of the king's men had already fallen, and little was wanting to make the rest give way. Then the youth galloped there with his iron soldiers, broke like a hurricane over the enemy, and beat down all who opposed him. They began to fly, but the youth pursued and never stopped, until there was not a single man left. Instead, however, of returning to the king, he conducted his troop through a path back to the forest and called forth Iron John. What do you desire? asked the wild man. Take back your horse and your troops and give me my free-legged horse again. All that he asked was done, and soon he was riding on his free-legged horse. When the king returned to his palace, his daughter went to meet him and wished him joy of his victory. I am not the one who carried away the victory, said he, but a stranger knight who came to my assistance with his soldiers. The daughter wanted to hear who the strange knight was, but the king did not know and said, He followed the enemy, and I did not see him again. She inquired of the gardener where his boy was, but he smiled and said, He has just come home on his three-legged horse, and the others have been mocking him and crying, Here he comes, our hobbledy jig back again. They asked too, Under what hedge have you been lying sleeping all the time? He, however, said, I did the best of all and it would have gone badly without me. And then he was still more ridiculed. The king said to his daughter, I will proclaim a great feast that shall last for three days, and you shall throw a golden apple. Perhaps the unknown will come to it. When the feast was announced, the youth went out of the forest and called Iron John. What do you desire? asked he that I may catch the king's daughter's golden apple. It is as safe as if you had it already, said Iron John. You shall likewise have a suit of red armour for the occasion and ride on a spirited chestnut horse. When the day came, the youth galloped to the spot, took his place among the knights and was recognised by no one. The king's daughter came forward and threw a golden apple to the knights, but none of them caught it but he. Only as soon as he had it, he galloped away. On the second day, Iron John equipped him as a white knight and gave him a white horse. Again, he was the only one who caught the apple, and he did not linger an instant, but galloped off with it. The king grew angry and said, That is not allowed. He must appear before me and tell his name. He gave the order that if the knight who caught the apple should go away again, 
they should pursue him, and if he would not come back willingly, they were to cut him down and stab him. On the third day, he received from Iron John a suit of black armour and a black horse, and again he caught the apple. But when he was riding off with it, the king's attendants pursued him, and one of them got so near him that he wounded the youth's leg with the point of his sword. The youth nevertheless escaped from them, but his horse leapt so violently that the helmet fell from the youth's head, and they could see that he had golden hair. They rode back and announced this to the king. The following day the king's daughter asked the gardener about his boy. He is at work in the garden. The queer creature has been at the festival too, and only came home yesterday evening. He has likewise shown my children three golden apples, which he has won. The king had him summoned into his presence, and he came and again had his little cap on his head. But the king's daughter went up to him and took it off, and then his golden hair fell down over his shoulders, and he was so handsome that all were amazed. Are you the knight who came every day to the festival, always in different colours, and who caught the free golden apples? asked the king. Yes, he answered, and here the apples are and he took them out of his pocket and returned them to the king. If you desire further proof, you may see the wound which your people gave me when they followed me. But I am likewise the knight who helped you to your victory over your enemies. If you can perform such deeds as that, you are no gardener's boy. Tell me, who is your father? My father is a mighty king, and gold have I in plenty, as great as I require. I well see, said the king, that I owe thanks to you. Can I do anything to please you? Yes, answered he, that indeed you can. Give me your daughter to marry. The maiden laughed and said, He does not stand much on ceremony but I have already seen by his golden hair that he was no gardener's boy, and then she went and kissed him. His father and mother came to the wedding and were in great delight, for they had given up all hope of ever seeing their dear son again. And as they were sitting at the marriage feast, the music suddenly stopped, the doors opened, and a stately king came in with a great retinue. He went up to the youth, embraced him, and said, I am Iron John, and was by enchantment a wild man, but you have set me free. All the treasures which I possess shall be your property. Quim's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 137. The Free Black Princesses East India was besieged by an enemy who would not retire until he had received $600.
Then the townsfolk caused it to be proclaimed by beat of drum that whosoever was able to procure the money should be mayor. Now there was a poor fisherman who fished on the lake with his son. And the enemy came and took the son prisoner and gave the father six hundred dollars for him. So the father went and gave them to the great men of the town and the enemy departed and the fisherman became mayor. Then it was proclaimed that whosoever did not say Mr. Mayor should be put to death on the gallows. The son got away again from the enemy, and came to a great forest on a high mountain. The mountain opened, and he went into a great enchanted castle, wherein chairs, tables, and benches were all hung with black. Then came three young princesses, who were entirely dressed in black, but had a little white on their faces. They told him, he was not to be afraid, they would not hurt him, and that he could save them. He said he would gladly do that, if he did but know how. At this they told him he must for a whole year not speak to them, and also not look at them. And what he wanted to have, he was just to ask for. And if they dared give him an answer, they would do so. When he had been there for a long while, he said he should like to go to his father, and they told him he might go. He was to take with him this purse with money, put on this coat, and in a week he must be back there again. Then he was caught up and was instantly in East India. He could no longer find his father, in the fisherman's hut, and asked the people where the poor fisherman could be. And they told him he must not say that, or he would come to the gallows. Then he went to his father and said, Fisherman, how have you got there? Then the father said, You must not say that. If the great men of the town knew of that, you would come to the gallows. He, however, would not stop, and was brought to the gallows. When he was there, he said, O oh, masters, just let me go to the old fisherman's hut. Then he put on his old smock frock, and came back to the great men, and said, Do ye not now see? Am I not the son of the poor fisherman? Did I not earn bread for my father and mother in these clothes? Hereupon his father knew him again, and begged his pardon, and took him home with him. And then he related all that had happened to him, and how he had got into a forest on a high mountain, and the mountain had opened, and he had gone into an enchanted castle, where all was black, and three young princesses had come to him, who were black except a little white on their faces. And they had told him not to fear, and that he could save them. Then his mother said, That might very likely not be a good thing to do, and that he ought to take a holy water vessel with him, and drop some boiling water on their faces.
he went back again, and he was afraid. And he dropped the water on their faces as they were sleeping, and they all turned half white. Then all the free princesses sprang up and said, You accursed dog! Our blood shall cry for vengeance on you. Now there is no man born in the world, nor will any ever be born who can set us free. We have still three brothers who are bound by seven chains. They shall tear you to pieces. Then there was a loud shrieking all over the castle, and he sprang out of the window and broke his leg. And the castle sank into the earth again, the mountain shut to again, and no one knew where the castle had stood. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 138. Noist and his three sons. Between Werrell and Soist, there lived a man whose name was Noist, and he had three sons. One was blind, the other lame, and the third stark naked. One time they went into a field, and there they saw a hare. The blind one shot it, the lame one caught it, the naked one put it in his pocket. Then they came to a mighty big lake, on which there were three boats, one sailed, one sank, the third had no bottom to it. They all three got in to the one with no bottom to it. Then they came to a mighty big forest, in which there was a mighty big tree. In the tree was a mighty big chapel. In the chapel was a sexton made of beechwood, and a boxwood parson, who dealt our holy water with clubs. How truly happy is that one who can from holy water run. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 139. The Maid of Brackle. A girl from Brackle once went to St. Anne's Chapel, at the foot of the Hinnenberg, and as she wanted to have a husband, and thought there was no one else in the chapel, she sang, O holy Saint Anne, help me soon to a man, you know him right well, but Sutma gate does he dwell, his hair it is golden, you know him right well. The clerk however, was standing behind the altar and heard that. So he cried in a very gruff voice, You shall not have him! You shall not have him! The maiden thought that the child Mary, who stood by her mother, Anne, had called out to her, and was angry, and cried, Fiddle-dee-dee, conceited thing, hold your tongue, and let your mother speak. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 140. Domestic Servants Where are you going? To Alp, 
I to whelp, you to whelp, so, so together we'll go. Have you a man? What is his name? Cham. My man Cham. Your man Cham. I to whelp, you to whelp, so, so together we'll go. Have you a child? What is he called? Wild. My child wild. Your child wild. My man Cham, your man Cham. I to whelp, you to whelp. So, so, together we'll go. Have you a maid? What's she called? Mabel. My maid Mabel. Your maid Mabel. My child wild. Your child wild. My man Cham. Your man Cham. I to whelp, you to whelp. So, so, together we'll go. Have you a farmhand? What do you call him? From your work do not budge. My farmhand, from your work do not budge. My child wild, your child wild. My man sham, your man sham. I to whelp, you to whelp. So, so, together we'll go. Grimm's Household Tales Translated by Margaret Hunt Read by Paul Martin this audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 141 The Lambkin and the Little Fish There were once a little brother and a little sister who loved each other with all their hearts. Their own mother was, however, dead, and they had a stepmother who was not kind to them and secretly did everything she could to hurt them. It so happened that the two were playing with other children in a meadow before the house, and there was a pond in the meadow which came up to one side of the house. The children ran about and caught each other and played at counting out. Eniki Beniki, let me live, and I to you my bird will give. The little bird its straw shall seek, the straw I'll give to the cow to eat. The pretty cow shall give me milk, the milk I'll take to the baker take. The baker he shall bake a cake, the cake I'll give unto the cat. The cat shall catch some mice for that, the mice I'll hang up in the smoke, and then you'll see the snow. They stood in a circle while they played this, and the one to whom the word snow fell had to run away, and all the others ran after him and caught him. As they were running about so merrily, the stepmother watched them from the window and grew angry. And as she understood arts of witchcraft, she bewitched them both and changed the little brother into a fish and the little sister into a lamb. Then the fish swam here and there about the pond and was very sad. And the lambkin walked up and down the meadow, and was miserable, and could not eat or touch one blade of grass. Thus passed a long time, and then the strangers came as visitors to the castle. The false stepmother thought, This is a good opportunity, and called the cook, and said to him, Go and fetch the lamb from the meadow and kill it. We have nothing else for the visitors. Then the cook went away and got the lamb and took it into the kitchen and tied its feet and all this it bore patiently. When he had drawn out his knife and was sharpening it 
on the doorstep to kill the lamb, he noticed a little fish swimming backwards and forwards in the water in front of the kitchen sink and looking up at him. This, however, was the brother, for when the fish saw the cook take the lamb away, it followed them and swam along the pond to the house. Then the lamb cried down to it, Ah, brother, in the pond so deep, so sad is my poor heart. Even now the cook, he wets his knife to take away my tender life. The little fish answered, Ah, little sister, up on high, how sad is my poor heart, while in this pond I lie. When the cook heard that the lambkin could speak and said such sad words to the fish down below, he was terrified and thought this could be no common lamb, but must be bewitched by the wicked woman in the house. Then he said, Be calm, I will not kill you, and took another sheep and made it ready for the guests and gave the lambkin to a good peasant woman to whom he related all that he had seen and heard. The peasant was, however, the very woman who had been foster mother to the little sister, and she suspected at once who the lamb was and took it to a wise woman. Then the wise woman pronounced a blessing over the lambkin and the little fish, through which they regained their human forms, and after this she took them both into a little hut in a great forest where they lived alone but were contented and happy. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 142, Simile Mountain. There were once two brothers, the one rich, the other poor. The rich one, however, gave nothing to the poor one, and he gained a scanty living by trading in corn, and often did so badly that he had no bread for his wife and children. Once, when he was wheeling a barrow through the forest, he saw on one side of him a great bare, naked-looking mountain, and as he'd never seen it before, he stood still and stared at it with amazement. While he was thus standing, he saw twelve great wild men coming towards him, and as he believed they were robbers, he pushed his barrow into the thicket, climbed up a tree, and waited to see what would happen. The twelve men, however, went to the mountain and cried, Semsi Mountain, Semsi Mountain, open! And immediately the barren mountain opened down the middle, and the twelve went into it, and as soon as they were within it shut. After a short time, however, it opened again, and the men came forth carrying heavy sacks on their shoulders, and when they were all once more in the daylight, they said, Semsi Mountain, Semsi Mountain, shut yourself. Then the mountain closed together, and there was no longer any entrance to be seen to it, and the twelve went away. When they were well out of sight, the poor man got down from the tree and was curious to know what really was secretly hidden in the mountain. So he went up to it and said, Semsi Mountain, Semsi Mountain, open. And the mountain opened to him also, 
Then he went inside, and the whole mountain was a cavern full of silver and gold, and behind lay great piles of pearls and sparkling jewels heaped up like corn. The poor man hardly knew what to do, and whether he might take any of these treasures for himself or not. But at last he filled his pockets with gold. But he left the pearls and precious stones where they were. When he came out again, he also said, Semsi Mountain, Semsi Mountain, shut yourself. And the mountain closed itself, and he went home with his barrow. And now he had no more cause for anxiety, but could buy bread for his wife and children with his gold and the wine into the bargain. He lived joyously and uprightly, gave help to the poor, and did good to everyone. When, however, the money came to an end, he went to his brother, borrowed a measure that held a bushel, and brought himself some more, but did not touch any of the most valuable things. When, for the third time, he wanted to fetch something, he again borrowed the measure of his brother. The rich man, however, long been envious of his brother's possessions, and of the handsome way of living, which he had set on foot, and could not understand from whence the riches came, and what his brother wanted with the measure. Then he thought of a cunning trick, and covered the bottom of the measure with pitch, and when he got the measure back, a piece of money was sticking in it. He at once went to his brother and asked him, What have you been measuring in the bushel measure? Corn and barley, said the other. Then he showed him a piece of money and threatened that if he did not tell the truth, he would accuse him before a court of justice. The poor man then told him everything, just as it happened. The rich man, however, ordered his carriage to be made ready and drove away, resolving to use the opportunity better than his brother had done, and to bring back with him quite different treasures. When he came to the mountain, he cried, Semsi Mountain, Semsi Mountain, open. The mountain opened, and he went inside. There lay the treasures, all before him, and for a long time he did not know which to clutch at first. At length he loaded himself with as many precious stones as he could carry. He wished to carry his load outside, but as his heart and soul were entirely full of the treasures, he'd forgotten the name of the mountain and cried, Simile Mountain, Simile Mountain, open! That, however, was not the right name, and the mountain never stirred, but remained shut Then he was alarmed, but the longer he thought about it, the more his thoughts confused themselves and his treasures were no more of any use to him. In the evening the mountain opened and the twelve robbers came in, and when they saw him they laughed and cried out, Bird, have we caught you at last? Didst you think 
we had never noticed that you had been in here twice. We could not catch you then. This third time you shall not get out again. Then he cried, It was not I, it was my brother. But let him beg for his life, and say what he would, they cut his head off. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audio book in its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 143. Going a-travelling. There was once a poor woman who had a son, who much wished to travel, but his mother said, How can you travel? We have no money at all for you to take away with you. Then said the son, I will manage very well for myself. I will always say, not much, not much, not much. So he walked for a long time and always said, not much, not much, not much. Then he passed by a company of fishermen and said, God speed you, not much, not much, not much. Why say you, peasant, not much? And when the net was drawn out, they had not caught much fish. So one of them fell on the youth with a stick and said, Have you never seen me threshing? What should I say then, asked the youth? You must say, Get it full, get it full. After this he again walked a long time and said, Get it full, get it full, until he came to the gallows where they had a poor sinner whom they were about to hang. Then he said, Good morning, get it full, get it full. What say you, knave, get it full? Do you want to make out that there are still more wicked people in the world? Is not this enough? And he again got some blows on his back. What am I to say then? said he. You must say, May God have pity on the poor soul. Again the youth walked on for a long time and said, May God have pity on the poor soul. Then he came to a pit by which stood a knacker who was cutting up a horse. The youth said, Good morning, God have pity on the poor soul. What do you say, you ill-tempered knave, said the knacker, gave him such a box on the ear that he could not see out of his eyes. What am I to say then? You must say, There lies the carrion in the pit. So he walked on, and always said, There lies the carrion in the pit. There lies the carrion in the pit. And he came to a cart full of people. So he said, Good morning, there lies the carrion in the pit. Then the cart pushed him into a hole, and the driver took his whip and cracked it upon the youth, till he was forced to crawl back to his mother, and as long as he lived, he never went out travelling again. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 144. The Donkey once upon a time there lived a king and a queen who were rich and had everything they wanted, but no children. The queen lamented over this day and night and said, I am like a field. 
on which nothing grows. At last God gave her her wish. But when the child came into the world, it did not look like a human child, but was a little donkey. When the mother saw that, her sorrow and outcries grew. She said she would far rather have no child at all than have a donkey, and that they were to throw it into the water, that the fishes might devour it. But the king said, No, since God has sent him, he shall be my son and heir, and after my death sit on the royal throne and wear the kingly crown. The donkey, therefore, was brought up and grew bigger, and his ears grew up beautifully high and straight. He was, however, of a merry disposition, jumped about, played, and had a special pleasure in music, so that he went to a celebrated musician and said, Teach me your art, that I may play the lute as well as you do. Ah, dear little master, answered the musician, that would come very hard to you. Your fingers are certainly not suited to it, and are far too big. I am afraid the strings would not last. No excuses were of any use. The donkey was determined to play the lute. He was persevering and industrious, and at last learned to do it as well as the master himself. The young lordling once went out walking full of thought and came to a well. He looked into it and in the mirror clear water saw his donkey's form. He was so distressed about it that he went out into the wide world and only took with him one faithful companion. They travelled up and down and at last they came into a kingdom where an old king reigned who had an only but wonderfully beautiful daughter. The donkey said, Here we will stay, knocked at the gate and cried, A guest is without, open, that he may enter. As, however, the gate was not opened, he sat down, took his lute, and played it in the most delightful manner, with his two forefeet. Then the doorkeeper opened his eyes most wonderfully wide, and ran to the king and said, Outside by the gate sits a young donkey which plays the lute as well as an experienced master. Then let the musician come to me, said the king. When, however, the donkey came in, everyone began to laugh at the lute player, and now the donkey was asked to sit down and eat with the servants. He, however, was unwilling and said, I am no common stable ass, I am a noble one. Then they said, If that is what you are, seat yourself with the men of war. No, said he, I will sit by the king. The king smiled and said good-humouredly, Yes, it shall be as you say, little ass, come here to me. Then he asked, Little ass, how does my daughter please you? The donkey turned his head towards her, looked at her, nodded and said, I like her above measure. I have never yet seen anyone so beautiful as she is. Well then, you shall sit next to her too, said the king. 
That is exactly what I wish, said the donkey, and he placed himself by her side, ate and drank, and knew how to behave himself daintily and cleanly. When the noble beast had stayed a long time at the king's court, he thought, What good does all this do me? I shall still have to go home again. Let his head hang sadly, and went to the king and asked for his dismissal. But the king had grown fond of him and said, Little ass, what ails you? You look as sour as a jug of vinegar. I will give you what you want. Do you want gold? No, said the donkey, and shook his head. Do you want jewels and expensive clothes? No. Do you wish for half my kingdom? Indeed, no. Then said the king, If only I knew what would make you happy. Will you have my pretty daughter to wife? Ah, yes, said the ass. I should indeed like her. And all at once he became quite merry and full of happiness, for that was exactly what he was wishing for. So a great and splendid wedding was held. In the evening, when the bride and bridegroom were led into their bedroom, the king wanted to know if the ass would behave well, and ordered a servant to hide himself there. When they were both inside, the bridegroom bolted the door, looked around, and as he believed that they were quite alone, he suddenly threw off his ass's skin, and stood there in the form of a handsome royal youth. Now, said he, you see who I am, and see also that I am not unworthy of you. Then the bride was glad, and kissed him, and loved him dearly. When morning came, he jumped up, put his animal's skin on again, and no one could have guessed what kind of a form was hidden beneath it. Soon came the old king. Ah, cried he, is the little ass merry? But surely you are sad, said he to his daughter, that you have not got a proper man for your husband. Oh no, dear father, I love him as well as if he were the handsomest in the world, and I will keep him as long as I live. The king was surprised, but the servant who had concealed himself came and revealed everything to him. The king said, That cannot be true. Then watch yourself the next night, and you will see it with your own eyes, and listen, Lord King, if you were to take his skin away, and throw it in the fire, he would be forced to show himself in his true shape. Your advice is good, said the king, and at night when they were asleep he stole in, and when he got to the bed he saw by the light of the moon a noble-looking youth lying there, and the skin lay stretched on the ground. So he took it away, and had a great fire lighted outside, and threw the skin into it, and remained by it himself, until it was all burned to ashes. As, however, he was anxious to know how the robbed man would behave himself, he stayed awake the whole night and watched. 
When the youth had slept his sleep out, he got up by the first light of morning, and wanted to put on the ass's skin, but it was not to be found. On this he was alarmed, and, full of grief and anxiety, said, Now I shall have to contrive to escape. But when he went out, there stood the king, who said, My son, where away in such haste? What have you in mind? Stay here, you are such a handsome man. You shall not go away from me. I will now give you half my kingdom, and after my death, you shall have the whole of it. Then I hope that what begins so well may end well, and I will stay with you, said the youth. And the old man gave him half the kingdom, and in a year's time, when he died, the youth had the whole, and after the death of his father, he had another kingdom as well, and lived in all magnificence. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 145, The Ungrateful Son. A man and his wife were once sitting by the door of their house, and they had a roasted chicken set before them, and were about to eat it together. Then the man saw that his aged father was coming, and hastily took the chicken and hid it, for he would not permit him to have any of it. The old man came, took a drink, and went away. Now the son wanted to put the roasted chicken on the table again, but when he took it up, it had become a great toad, which jumped into his face and sat there and never went away again. And if anyone wanted to take it off, it looked venomously at him, as if it would jump in his face, so that no one would venture to touch it. And the ungrateful son was forced to feed the toad every day, or else it fed on his face, and thus he went about the world without knowing peace. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 146. The Turnip There were once two brothers who both served as soldiers. One of them was rich and the other poor. Then the poor one, to escape from his poverty, took off his soldier's coat and became a farmer. He dug and hoed his bit of land and sowed it with turnip seed. The seed came up and one turnip grew there which became large and vigorous and visibly grew bigger and bigger and seemed as if it would never stop growing, so that it might have been called the Princess of Turnips, for never was such a one seen before, and never will such an one be seen again. At length it was so enormous that by itself it filled a whole cart, and two oxen were required to draw it, and the farmer had not the least idea what he was to do with the turnip, or whether it would be a fortune to him or a misfortune. At last he thought, if you sell it, what will you get for it that is of any importance? And if you eat it yourself, why the small turnips 
will do you just as much good. It would be better to take it to the king and make him a present of it. So he placed it on a cart, harnessed two oxen, took it to the palace and presented it to the king. What strange thing is this, said the king. Many wonderful things have come before my eyes, but never such a monster as this. From what seed can this have sprung? Or are you a luck child, and have met with it by chance? Ah no, said the farmer, no luck child am I. I am a poor soldier who, because he could no longer support himself, hung his soldier's coat on a nail and took to farming land. I have a brother who is rich and well known to you, Lord King, but I, because I have nothing, am forgotten by everyone. Then the king felt compassion for him and said, You shall be raised from your poverty and shall have such gifts from me that you shall be equal to your rich brother. Then he bestowed on him much golden lands and meadows and herds and made him immensely rich, so that the wealth of the other brother could not be compared with his. When the rich brother heard what the poor one had gained for himself, with one single turnip he envied him, and thought in every way how he also could get hold of a similar piece of luck. He would, however, set about it in a much wiser way, and took golden horses and carried them to the king, and made certain the king would give him a much larger present in return. If his brother had got so much for one turnip, what would he not carry away with him in return for such beautiful things as these? The king accepted his present, and said he had nothing to give him in return that was more rare and excellent than the great turnip. So the rich man was obliged to put his brother's turnip in a cart and have it taken to his home. When there he did not know on whom to vent his rage and anger, until bad thoughts came to him and he resolved to kill his brother. He hired murderers who were to lie in ambush, and then he went to his brother and said, Dear brother, I know of a hidden treasure. We will dig it up together and divide it between us. The other agreed to this and accompanied him without suspicion. While they were on their way, however, the murderers attacked him, bound him, and would have hanged him to a tree. But just as they were doing this, loud singing and the sound of a horse's feet were heard in the distance. On this their hearts were filled with terror, and they pushed their prisoner head first into the sack, hung it on a branch, and ran away. He, however, worked up there until he had made a hole in the sack through which he could put his head. The man who was coming by was a travelling student, a young fellow who rode on his way through the wood joyously singing his song. When he who was aloft saw that someone was passing below him, he cried, Good day! You have come at a lucky time. The student looked round on every side, 
but did not know from where the voice came. At last he said, Who calls me? Then an answer came from the top of the tree. Raise your eyes. Here I sit aloft in the sack of wisdom. In a short time I have learned great things. Compared with this, all schools are a jest. In a very short time I shall have learned everything, and shall descend wiser than all other men. I understand the stars and the signs of the zodiac, and the tracks of the winds, the sand of the sea, the healing of illnesses, and the virtues of all herbs, birds, and stones. If you were once within it, you would feel what noble things issue forth from the sack of knowledge. The student, when he heard all this, was astonished and said, Blessed be the hour in which I have found you. May not I also enter the sack for a while? He who was above replied as if unwillingly, For a short time I will let you get into it, if you reward me and give me good words. But you must wait an hour longer, for one thing remains which I must learn before I do it. When the student had waited a while, he became impatient and begged to be allowed to get in at once. His thirst for knowledge was so very great. So he who was above pretended at last to give in and said, In order that I may come forth from the house of knowledge, you must let it down by the rope and then you shall enter it. So the student let the sack down, untied it and set him free and then cried, Now, draw me up at once, and was about to get into the sack. Halt, said the other, that won't do, and took him by the head, and put him upside down into the sack, fastened it, and drew the disciple of wisdom up the tree by the rope. Then he swung him in the air, and said, How goes it with you, my dear fellow? Behold, already you feel wisdom coming and are gaining valuable experience. Keep perfectly quiet until you become wiser. Thereupon he mounted the student's horse and rode away, but in an hour's time sent someone to let the student out again. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 147. The Old Man Made Young Again. In the time when our Lord still walked this earth, he and St. Peter stopped one evening at a smith's and received free quarters. Then it came to pass that a poor beggar, hardly pressed by age and infirmity, came to this house and begged alms of the smith. St. Peter had compassion on him and said, Lord and Master, if it please you, cure his torments that he may be able to win his own bread. The Lord said kindly, Smith, lend me your oven and put on some coals for me, and then I will make his ailing old man young again. The smith was quite willing, and St. Peter blew the bellows, and when the coal fire sparked, up large and high, our Lord took the little old man, pushed him in the oven in the midst of the red-hot fire, so that he glowed like a rose bush, and praised God with a loud voice. After that, the Lord went to the quenching tub, put the glowing little man into it, so that the water closed over him, and after he had carefully cooled him, 
gave him his blessing. When behold, the little man sprang nimbly out, looking fresh, strong, healthy, and as if he were twenty. The smith, who had watched everything closely and attentively, invited them all to supper. He, however, had an old, half-blind, crooked mother-in-law, who went to the youth, and with great earnestness asked if the fire had burnt him much. He answered that he had never felt more comfortable, and that he had sat in the red heat as if he had been in cool dew. The youth's words echoed in the ears of the old woman all night long, and early next morning when the Lord had gone on his way again, and had heartily thanked the smith, the latter thought he might make his old mother-in-law young again, the same way as he had watched everything so carefully, and it lay in the province of his trade. So he called to ask her if she too would like to go bounding about like a girl of eighteen. She said, with all my heart, as the youth has come out of it so well. So the smith made a great fire, and thrust the old woman into it, and she writhed about this way and that, and uttered terrible cries of murder. Sit still, why are you screaming and jumping about so, cried he, and as he spoke, he blew the bellows again until all her rags were burnt. The old woman cried without ceasing, and the smith thought to himself, I have not quite the right art, and took her out and threw her into the cooling tub. Then she screamed so loudly that the smith's wife upstairs and her daughter-in-law heard, and they both ran downstairs and saw the old woman lying in a heap in the quenching tub, howling and screaming, with her face wrinkled and shriveled, and all out of shape. Then the two, who were both with child, were so terrified that that very night two boys were born, who were not made like men but apes, and they ran into the woods, and from them sprang the race of apes. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 148. The Lord's Animals and the Devils. The Lord God had created all animals, and had chosen out the wolf to be his dog. But he had forgotten the goat. Then the devil made ready, and began to create also, and created goats with fine long tails. Now when they went to pasture, they generally remained caught in the hedges by their tails. Then the devil had to go there, and disentangle them, with a great deal of trouble. This enraged him at last, and he went and bit off the tail of every goat, as may be seen to this day by the stump. Then he let them go to pasture alone. But it came to pass that the Lord God perceived how at one time they gnawed away at a fruitful tree, at another injured the noble vines, or destroyed other tender plants. This distressed him, so that in his goodness and mercy he summoned his wolves, who soon tore in pieces the goats that went there. 
When the devil observed this, he went before the Lord and said, Your creatures have destroyed mine. The Lord answered, Why did you create things to do harm? The devil said, I was compelled to do it. Inasmuch as my thoughts run on evil, what I create can have no other nature, and you must pay me heavy damages. I will pay you as soon as the oak leaves fall. Come then, your money will be ready, counted out. When the oak leaves had fallen, the devil came and demanded what was due to him. But the Lord said, In the church of Constantinople stands a tall oak tree, which still has all its leaves. With raging and curses, the devil departed and went to seek the oak, wandered in the wilderness for six months before he found it, and when he returned, all the oaks had in the meantime covered themselves again with green leaves. Then he had to forfeit his indemnity, and in his rage he put out the eyes of all the remaining goats, and put his own in instead. This is why all goats have devil's eyes, and their tails bitten off, and why he likes to assume their shape. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 149, The Beam. There was once a magician who was standing in the midst of a great crowd of people performing his wonders. He had a rooster brought in, which lifted a heavy beam and carried it as if it were as light as a feather. But a girl was present who had just found a bit of four-leafed clover and had therefore become so wise that no deception could stand out against her and she saw that the beam was nothing but a straw. So she cried, You people, do you not see that it is a straw that the rooster is carrying and no beam? Immediately the spell vanished and the people saw what it was and drove the magician away in shame and disgrace. He, however, full of inward anger, said, I will soon revenge myself. After some time the girl's wedding day came, and she was decked out and went in a great procession over the fields to the place where the church was. All at once she came to a stream which was very much swollen, and there was no bridge and no plank to cross it. Then the bride nimbly lifted her dress and wanted to wade through it, and just as she was thus standing in the water, a man, and it was the magician, cried mockingly close beside her, Aha! Where are your eyes that you take that for water? Then her eyes were opened, and she saw that she was standing with her clothes lifted up in the middle of a field that was blue with the flowers of blue flax. Then all the people saw it likewise, and chased her away with ridicule and laughter. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 150. The Old Beggar Woman There was once an old woman, but you have surely seen an old woman go begging before now. This woman begged the same way, and when she got anything, she said, 
May God reward you. The beggar woman came to a door, and there by the fire a friendly rogue of a boy was standing warming himself. The boy said kindly to the poor old woman who was standing shivering by the door, Come, old mother, and warm yourself. She came in, but stood too near the fire, so that her old rags began to burn and she was not aware of it. The boy stood and saw that, but he did not put the flames out. Is it not true that he should have put them out? And if he had not any water, then should he have wept all the water in his body out of his eyes, and that would have supplied two pretty streams with which to extinguish them? Quim's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 151, The Three Sluggards. A certain king had three sons, who were all equally dear to him, and he did not know which of them to appoint as his successor after his own death. When the time come, when he was about to die, he summoned them to his bedside and said, Dear children, I have been thinking of something which I will declare unto you. Whoever of you is the laziest shall have the kingdom. The eldest said, Then, Father, the kingdom is mine, for I am so idle that if I lie down to rest and a drop falls in my eye, I will not open it that I may sleep. The second said, Father, the kingdom belongs to me, for I am so idle that when I am sitting by the fire warming myself, I would rather let my heel be burnt off than draw back my leg. The third said, Father, the kingdom is mine, for I am so idle that if I were going to be hanged and had the rope already round my neck and anyone put a sharp knife into my hand with which I might cut the rope, I would rather let myself be hanged than raise my hand to the rope. When the father heard that, he said, You have carried it the farthest and shall be king. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 152. The Twelve Idle Servants. Twelve servants, who had done nothing all the day, would not exert themselves at night either, but laid themselves on the grass and boasted of their idleness. The first said, What is your laziness to me? I have to concern myself about my own. The care of my body is my principal work. I eat a lot and drink still more. When I have had four meals, I fast a short time until I feel hunger again. And that suits me best. To rise early is not for me. When it is getting near midday, I already seek out a resting place for myself. If the master calls, I do exactly as if I had not heard him. And if he calls for the second time, I wait a while before I get up and go to him very slowly. In this way, life is endurable. The second said, I have a horse to look after, but I leave the bit in his mouth 
and if I do not want to do it, I give him no food, and I say he has had it already. I, however, lay myself in the oat chest and sleep for four hours. After this I stretch out one foot and move it a couple of times over the horse's body, and then he is combed and cleaned. Who is going to make a great business of that? Nevertheless, work is too tiring for me. The third said, Why plague oneself with work? Nothing comes of it. I laid myself in the sun and fell asleep. It began to rain a little, but why should I get up? I let it rain on in God's name. At last came a splashing shower, so heavy indeed that it pulled the hair out of my head and washed it away, and I got a hole in the skull. I put a plaster on it, and then it was all right. I've already had several injuries of that kind. The fourth said, If I am to undertake a piece of work, I first lay about for an hour that I may save up my strength. After that, I begin quite slowly and ask if someone could help me. Then I let him do the chief of the work and in reality only look on. But that is also is still too much for me. The fifth said, What does that matter? Just think, I am to take away the manure from the horse's stable and load the cart with it. I let it go on slowly and if I'd taken anything on the fork, I only half raise it up, and then I rest just a quarter of an hour until I throw it in. It is enough and to spare if I take out a cartful in the day. I have no fancy for killing myself with work. The sixth said, Shame on ye. I am afraid of no work, but I lie down for three weeks and never once take my clothes off. What is the use of buckling your shoes on? For all I care, they may fall off my feet. It is no matter. If I am going up some steps, I drag one foot slowly after the other, onto the first step, and then I count the rest of them, that I may know where I must rest. The seventh said, That will not do with me. My master looks after my work. Only he is not at home the whole day. But I neglect nothing. I run as fast as it is possible to do when one crawls. If I am to move, four sturdy men must push me with all their might. I came where six men were lying sleeping on a bed beside each other. I lay down by them and slept too. There was no wakening me again. And when they wanted to have me home... They had to carry me. The eighth said, I see plainly that I am the only active fellow. If a stone lie before me, I do not give myself the trouble to raise my legs and step over it. I lay myself down on the ground, and if I am wet and covered with mud and dirt, I stay lying until the sun has dried me again. At the very most, I only turn myself so that it can shine on me. The ninth said, That is the right way. Today the bread was before me, but I was too lazy to take it and nearly died of hunger. Moreover, a jug stood by it, but it was so big and heavy that I did not like to lift it up. 
and preferred bearing first. Just to turn myself around was too much for me. I remained lying like a log the whole day. The tent said, Laziness has brought misfortune on me. A broken leg and swollen calf. Three of us were lying on the road, and I had my legs stretched out. Someone came with a cart, and the wheels went over me. I might indeed have drawn my legs back, but I did not hear the cart coming, for the mosquitoes were humming about my ears and creeping in at my nose and out again at my mouth. Who can take the trouble to drive the vermin away? The eleventh said, I gave up my place yesterday. I had no fancy for carrying the heavy books to my master any longer or fetching them away again. There was no end of it all day long. But to tell the truth, he gave me my dismissal and would not keep me any longer for his clothes, which I had left lying in the dust, were all moth-eaten. And I am very glad of it. The twelfth said, Today I had to drive the cart into the country and made myself a bed of straw on it and had a good sleep. The rain slipped out of my hand and when I awoke the horse had nearly torn itself loose. The harness was gone, the strap which fastened the horse to the shafts was gone and so were the collar, the bridle and bit. Someone had come by who had carried all off. Besides this, the cart had got into mud and stuck fast. I left it standing and stretched myself on the straw again. At last the master came himself and pushed the cart out. And if he had not come, I should not be lying here but there and sleeping in full tranquillity. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 153. The Shepherd Boy There was once a shepherd boy whose fame spread far and wide because of the wise answers which he gave to every question. The king of the country heard of it likewise, but he did not believe it, and sent for the boy. Then he said to him, If you can give me an answer to three questions, which I will ask you, I will look on you as my own child, and you shall live with me in the royal palace. The boy said, What are the three questions? The king said, The first is, How many drops of water are there in the ocean? The shepherd boy answered, Lord King, if you will have all the rivers on earth dammed up so that not a single drop runs from them into the sea until I have counted it, I will tell you how many drops there are in the sea. The king said, The next question is, How many stars are there in the sky? The shepherd boy said, Give me a great sheet of white paper and then he made so many fine points on it with a pen that they could scarcely be seen, and it was all but impossible to count them, anyone who looked at them would have lost his sight. Then he said, There are as many stars in the sky as there are points on the paper. 
just count them. But no one was able to do it. The king said, the third question is, how many seconds of time are there in eternity? Then the shepherd boy said, in Lower Pomerania is the Diamond Mountain, which is two miles and a half high, two miles and a half wide, and two miles and a half in depth. Every hundred years a little bird comes and sharpens its beak on it, and when the whole mountain is worn away by this, then the first second of eternity will be over. The king said, You have answered the three questions like a wise man, and shall henceforth dwell with me in my royal palace, and I will regard you as my own child. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 154. The Star Money. There was once upon a time a little girl whose father and mother were dead, and she was so poor that she no longer had any little room to live in or bed to sleep in, and at last she had nothing else but the clothes she was wearing and a little bit of bread in her hand, which some charitable soul had given her. She was, however, good and pious, and as she was thus forsaken by all the world, she went forth into the open country, trusting in the good God. Then a poor man met her, who said, Ah, give me something to eat, I am so hungry. She gave him the whole of her piece of bread and said, May God bless it to your use, and went onwards. Then came a child who moaned and said, My head is so cold, give me something to cover it with. So she took off her hood and gave it to him, and when she had walked a little farther, she met another child who had no jacket and was frozen with cold. Then she gave it her own, and a little farther on one begged for a frock, and she gave away that also. At length she got into a forest, and it had already become dark, and there came yet another child, and asked for a little shirt, and the good little girl thought to herself, it is a dark night, and no one sees you, you can very well give your little shirt away, and took it off, and gave away that also. And as she stood, and had not one single thing left, suddenly some stars from heaven fell down, and they were nothing else but hard, smooth pieces of money, and although she had just given her little shirt away, she had a new one, which was of the very finest linen. Then she gathered together the money into this, and was rich all the days of her life. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 155. The Stolen Pennies. A father was one day sitting at dinner with his wife and his children and a good friend who had come on a visit with them. And as they thus sat, 
and it was striking twelve o'clock, the stranger saw the door open, and a very pale child dressed in snow-white clothes came in. It did not look around, and it did not speak, but went straight into the next room. Soon afterwards it came back, and went out the door again in the same quiet manner. On the second and on the third day, it came also exactly in the same way. At last the stranger asked the father to whom the beautiful child that went into the next room every day at noon belonged. I have never seen it, said he, neither did he know to whom it could belong. The next day, when it came again, the stranger pointed it out to the father, who, however, did not see it, and the mother and the children also all saw nothing. On this the stranger got up, went to the room door, opened it a little, and peeped in. Then he saw the child sitting on the ground, and digging and seeking about industriously amongst the crevices between the boards of the floor. But when it saw the stranger, it disappeared. He now told what he had seen and described the child exactly, and the mother recognised it and said, Ah! It is my dear child who died a month ago. They took up the boards and found two pennies which the child had once received from its mother that it might give them to a poor man. It, however, had thought, You can buy yourself a biscuit for that, and had kept the pennies and hidden them in the opening between the boards, and therefore... It had had no rest in its grave, and had come every day at noon to seek for these pennies. The parents gave the money at once to a poor man, and after that the child was never seen again. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 156. Brides on Trial there was once a young shepherd who wished to marry, and was acquainted with three sisters who were all equally pretty, so that it was difficult for him to make a choice, and he could not decide to give the preference to any one of them. Then he asked his mother for advice, and she said, Invite all three, and set some cheese before them, and watch how they eat it. The youth did so. The first, however, swallowed the cheese with the rind on. The second hastily cut the rind off the cheese, but she cut it so quickly that she left much good cheese with it and threw that away also. The third peeled the rind off carefully and cut neither too much nor too little. The shepherd told all this to his mother, who said, Take the third for your wife. This he did, and lived contentedly and happily with her. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 157. Odds and Ends There was once upon a time a maiden who was pretty but idle and negligent. When she had to spin, she was so bad-tempered that if there was a little knot in the flax, she at once pulled out a whole heap of it and strewed it about on the ground beside her. 
Now she had a servant who was industrious and gathered together the bits of flax which were thrown away, cleaned them, spanned them fine, and had a beautiful gown made out of them for herself. A young man had wooed the lazy girl and the wedding was to take place. On the eve of the wedding, the industrious one was dancing merrily about in her pretty dress and the bride said, Ah, how that girl does jump about dressed in my odds and ends. The bridegroom heard that and asked the bride what she meant by it. Then she told him that the girl was wearing a dress made of the flax which she had thrown away. When the bridegroom heard that and saw how idle she was and how industrious the poor girl was, he gave her up and went to the other and chose her as his wife. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 158. The Sparrow and His Four Children A sparrow had four young ones in a swallow's nest. When they were fledged, some naughty boys pulled out the nest, but fortunately all the birds got safely away in the high wind. Then the old bird was grieved that as his sons had all gone out into the world, he had not first warned them of every kind of danger and given them good instruction how to deal with each. In the autumn... A great many sparrows assembled together in a wheat field, and there the old bird met his four children again, and full of joy took them home with him. Ah, my dear sons, what pain I have been in about you all through the summer, because you got away in the wind without my teaching. Listen to my words, obey your father, and be well on your guard. Little birds have to encounter great dangers. And then he asked the eldest where he had spent the summer and how he had supported himself. I stayed in the gardens and looked for caterpillars and small worms until the cherries got ripe. Ah, my son, said the father, tidbits are not bad, but there is a great risk about them. On that account, take care of yourself, and particularly when people are going about the gardens who carry long green poles, which are hollow inside and have a little hole at the top. Yes, father, but what if a little green leaf is stuck over the hole with wax, said the son. Where have you seen that? In the merchant's garden, said the youngster. Oh, my son, merchant folks are quick folks, said the father. If you have been among the children of the world, you have learned worldly shiftiness enough only to see that you use it well and do not be too confident. After this, he asked the next, Where have you passed your time? At court, said the son. Sparrows and silly little birds are of no use in that place. There one finds much gold, velvet, silk, armour, harnesses, sparrow-hawks, screech-owls and hen-harriers. Keep to the horse's stable, where they winnow oats or fresh, and then fortune 
may give you your daily grain of corn in peace. Yes, father, said the son, but when the stable boys make traps and fix their gins and snares in the straw, many one is caught fast. Where have you seen that, said the old bird? At court among the stable boys. Oh, my son, court boys are bad boys. If you have been to court and among the lords and have left no feathers there, you have learned a fair amount, and you will know very well how to go about the world. But look around you and above you, for the wolves devour the wisest dogs. The father examined the third also. Where did you seek your safety? I have broken up tubs and ropes on the road and highways, and sometimes met with grain of corn or barley. That is indeed dainty fare, said the father, but be careful and look round, especially when you see anyone stooping and about to pick up a stone. There is not much time to stay then. That is true, said the son, but what if anyone should carry a bit of a rock or ore? ready beforehand in his breast or pocket. Where have you seen that? Among the mountaineers, dear father. When they go out, they generally take little bits of ore with them. Mountain folks are working folks, and clever folks. If you have been among mountain lads, you have seen and learned something. But when you go there, beware, for many a sparrow has been brought to a bad end by a mountain boy. At length the father came to the youngest son. You, my dear chirping nestling, were always the silliest and weakest. Stay with me. The world has many rough, wicked birds, which have crooked beaks and long claws, and lie in wait for poor little birds and swallow them. Keep with those of your own kind, and pick up little spiders and caterpillars from the trees, or the house, and then you will live long in peace. My dear father, he who feeds himself without injury to other people fares well, and no sparrow, hawk, eagle or kite will hurt him if he specially commits himself and his lawful food evening and morning faithfully to God, who is the creator and preserver of all forest and village birds, who likewise hear the cry and prayer of the young ravens. For no sparrow or wren ever falls to the ground except by his will. Where have you learned this? The son answered, When the great blast of wind tore me away from you, I came to a church, and there during the summer I have picked up the flies and spiders from the windows and heard this lesson preached. The father of all sparrows fed me all the summer through and kept me from all mischance and from ferocious birds. In truth, my dear son, if you take refuge in the churches, and help to clear away spiders and buzzing flies, and cry unto God like the young ravens, and commend yourself to the eternal Creator, all will be well with you, even if the whole world were full of wild, malicious birds. 
He who to God commits his ways, in silence suffers, waits and prays, preserves his faith and conscience pure, he is of God's protection sure. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 159. The Tale of Cockadoodle. In the time of Cockadoodle, I went there and saw Rome and the Lateran hanging by a small silken thread, and a man without feet who outran a swift horse, and a keen sharp sword that cut through a bridge. There I saw a young ass with a silver nose which pursued two fleet hares and a lime tree that was very large on which hot cakes were growing. There I saw a lean old goat which carried about a hundred cartloads of fat on his body and sixty loads of salt. Have I not told enough lies? There I saw a plough ploughing without horse or cow, and a child of one year threw four millstones from Rattisbon to Trevis, and from Trevis to Strasbourg, and a hawk swam over the Rhine, which he had a perfect right to do. There I heard some fishers begin to make such a disturbance with each other that it resounded as far as heaven, and sweet honey flowed like water from a deep valley at the top of a high mountain. And these were strange things. There were two crows which were mowing a meadow, and I saw two gnats building a bridge, and two doves tore a wolf to pieces, two children brought forth two kinds, and two frogs threshed corn together. There I saw two mice consecrating a bishop and two cats scratching out a bear's tongue. Then a snail came running up and killed two furious lions. There stood a barber and shaved a woman's beard off, and two infants told their mother to hold her tongue. There I saw two greyhounds, which brought a mill out of the water, and a sorry old horse was beside it, and said it was right, and four horses were standing in the yard, threshing corn with all their might and two goats were heating the stove, and a red cow shot the bread into the oven. Then a cock crowed, Cock-a-doodle-doo. That's my story. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 160. The Ditmarsh Tale of Lies. I will tell you something. I saw two roasted fowls flying. They flew quickly and had their breasts turned to heaven and their backs to hell. And an anvil and a millstone swum across the Rhine prettily, slowly and gently, and a frog sat on the ice at wit sun-tide and ate a ploughshare. Three fellows who wanted to catch a hare went on crutches and stilts, One of them was deaf, the second blind, the third dumb, and the fourth could not stir a step. Do you want to know how it was done? First the blind man saw the hare running across the field. The dumb one called to the lame one, and the lame one seized it by the neck. There were certain men who wished to sail on dry land, and they set their sails in the wind and sailed away over green fields. Then they sailed over a high mountain, and there they were miserably drowned. 
A crab was chasing a hare, which was running away at full speed, and high up on the roof lay a cow which had climbed up there. In that country the flies are as big as the goats are here. Open the window, that the lies may fly out. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 161. A Riddling Tale. Three women were changed into flowers which grew in the field, but one of them was allowed to be in her own home at night. Then once, when day was drawing near and she was forced to go back to her companions in the field and became a flower again, she said to her husband, If you will come this afternoon and gather me, I shall be set free and henceforth stay with you. And he did so. Now the question is, how did her husband know her, for the flowers were exactly alike and without any difference? Answer. As she was at her home during the night, and not in the field, no dew fell on her as it did on the others, and by this her husband knew her. Grimm's Household Tales, translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin. This audiobook and its underlying text is in the public domain. Number 162. Snow White and Rose Red. There was once a poor widow who lived in a lonely cottage. In front of the cottage was a garden wherein stood two rose trees, one of which bore white and the other red roses. She had two children who were like the two rose trees, and one was called Snow White and the other Rose Red. They were as good and happy, as busy and cheerful as ever two children in the world were. Only Snow White was more quiet and gentle than Rose Red. Rose Red liked better to run about in the meadows and fields, seeking flowers and catching butterflies. But Snow White sat at home with her mother and helped her with her housework or read to her when there was nothing to do. The two children were so fond of each other that they always held each other by the hand when they went out together, and when Snow White said, We will not leave each other, Rose Red answered, Never so long as we live. And their mother would add, What one has she must share with the other. They often ran about the forest alone and gathered red berries, and no beasts did them any harm, but came close to them trustfully, the little hare would eat a cabbage leaf out of their hands, the deer grazed by their side, the stag leapt merrily by them, and the birds sat still upon the boughs and sang whatever they knew. No trouble found them. If they had stayed too late in the forest and night came, they laid themselves down near one another upon the moss and slept until morning came and their mother knew this, and had no distress on their account. Once, when they had spent the night in the woods, and the dawn had wakened them, they saw a beautiful child in a shining white dress, sitting near their bed. 
he got up and looked quite kindly at them, but said nothing and went away into the forest. And when they looked around, they found that they had been sleeping quite close to a pit and would certainly have fallen into it in the darkness if they had gone only a few paces further. And their mother told them that it must have been the angel who watches over good children. Snow White and Rose Red kept their mother's little cottage so neat that it was a pleasure to look inside it. In the summer, Rose Red took care of the house and every morning laid a wreath of flowers by her mother's bed before she awoke, in which was a rose from each tree. In the winter, Snow White lit the fire and hung the kettle on the hob. The kettle was of copper and shone like gold, so brightly was it polished. In the evening, when the snowflakes fell, the mother said, Go, Snow White, and bolt the door. And then they sat round the hearth, and the mother took her spectacles and read aloud out of the large book, and the two girls listened as they sat and span. And close by them lay a lamb upon the floor, and behind them, upon a perch, sat a white dove, with its head hidden beneath its wings. One evening, as they were thus sitting comfortably together, someone knocked at the door, as if he wished to be let in. The mother said, Quick, Rose Red, open the door. It must be a traveller who is seeking shelter. Rose Red went and pushed back the bolt, thinking that it was a poor man, but it was not. It was a bear that stretched his broad black head within the door. Rose Red screamed and sprang back. The lamb bleated, the dove fluttered, and Snow White hid herself behind her mother's bed. But the bear began to speak and said, Do not be afraid. I will do you no harm. I am half frozen and only want to warm myself a little beside you. Poor bear, said the mother, lie down by the fire. Only take care that you do not burn your coat. Then she cried, Snow White, Rose Red, come out. The bear will do you no harm. He means well. So they both came out, and the lamb and dove came nearer, and were not afraid of him. The bear said, Here, children, knock the snow out of my coat a little. So they brought the broom and swept the bear's hide clean. And he stretched himself by the fire and growled contentedly and comfortably. It was not long before they grew quite at home and played with their clumsy guest. They tugged his hair with their hands, put their feet upon his back and rolled him about. Or they took a hazel switch and beat him. And when he growled, they laughed. But the bear took it all in good fun. Only when they were too rough, he called out, Children, children, let me live. Snowy white, rosy red, will you beat your lover dead? When it was bedtime and the others went to bed, the mother said to the bear, You can lie there by the half, and then you will be safe from the cold and the bad weather. As soon as day dawned, the two children let him out 
and he trotted across the snow into the forest. From then on, the bear came every evening at the same time, laid himself down by the hearth, and let the children amuse themselves with him as much as they liked. And they got so used to him that the doors were never fastened until their black friend had arrived. When spring had come and all outside was green, the bear said one morning to Snow White, Now I must go away and cannot come back for the whole summer. Where are you going then, dear bear? asked Snow White. I must go into the forest and guard my treasures from the wicked dwarfs. In the winter when the earth is frozen hard, they are obliged to stay below and cannot work their way through. But now when the sun has thawed and warmed the earth, they break through it and come out to pry and steal, and what once gets into their hands and in their caves does not easily see daylight again. Snow White was sad that he was going away, and as she unbolted the door for him, and the bear was hurrying out, he caught against the bolt, and a piece of his hairy coat was torn off, and it seemed to Snow White as if she had seen gold shining through it, but she was not sure about it. The bear ran away quickly, and was soon out of sight behind the trees. A short time afterwards, the mother sent her children into the forest to get firewood. There they found a big tree which lay felled on the ground, and close by the trunk something was jumping backwards and forwards in the grass, but they could not make out what it was. When they came nearer they saw a dwarf with an old withered face and a snow-white beard a yard long. The end of the beard was caught in a crevice of the tree, and the little fellow was jumping backwards and forwards like a dog tied to a rope, and did not know what to do. He glared at the girls with his fiery red eyes and cried, Why do you stand there? Can you not come here and help me? What are you doing there, little man? asked Rose Red. You stupid prying goose, answered the dwarf. I was going to split the tree to get a little wood for cooking. The little bit of food that one of us wants gets burnt up directly with thick logs. We do not swallow so much as you coarse greedy folk. I had just driven the wedge safely in and everything was going as I wished, but the wretched wood was too smooth and suddenly sprang apart, and the tree closed so quickly that I could not pull out my beautiful white beard, so now it is trapped in and I cannot get away. And the silly, sleek, milk-faced things laughed. Ah, how hateful you are! The children tried very hard, but they could not pull the beard out. It was caught too tight. I will run and fetch someone, said Rose Red. You senseless goose, snarled the dwarf. Why should you fetch someone? You are already too, too many for me. Can you not think of something better? Don't be impatient, said Snow White. I will help you. And she pulled her scissors out of her pocket 
and cut off the end of the beard. As soon as the dwarf felt himself free, he laid hold of a bag which lay amongst the roots of the tree, and which was full of gold, and lifted it up grumbling to himself. Rude people to cut off a piece of my fine beard, bad luck to you. And then he swung the bag upon his back, and went off without even once looking at the children. Some time after that, Snow White and Rose Red went to a catch a dish of fish. As they came near the brook, they saw something like a large grasshopper jumping towards the water, as if it were going to leap in. They ran to it and found it was a dwarf. Where are you going? said Rose Red. You surely don't want to go into the water? I am not such a fool, cried the dwarf. Don't you see that the accursed fish wants to pull me in? The little man had been sitting there fishing, and unluckily the wind had twisted his beard with the fishing line. Just then a big fish bit, and the feeble creature had not strength to pull it out. The fish kept the upper hand and pulled the dwarf towards him. He held on to all the reeds and rushes, but it was of little good. He was forced to follow the movements of the fish and was in urgent danger of being dragged into the water. The girls came just in time. They held him fast and tried to free his beard from the line, but all in vain. Beard and line were entangled fast together. Nothing was left but to bring out the scissors and cut the beard, whereby a small part of it was lost. When the dwarf saw that, he screamed out, Is that civil, you toadstool, to disfigure one's face? Was it not enough to clip off the end of my beard? Now you have cut off the best part of it. I cannot let myself be seen by my people. I wish you had been made to run the soles off your shoes. Then he took out a sack of pearls which lay in the rushes, and without saying a word more, he dragged it away and disappeared behind a stone. It happened that soon afterwards the mother sent the two children to the town to buy needles and thread and laces and ribbons. The road led them across a pasture upon which huge pieces of rock lay strewn here and there. Now they noticed a large bird hovering in the air, flying slowly around and around above them. It sank lower and lower, and at last settled near a rock not far off. Directly afterwards they heard a loud piteous cry. They ran up and saw with horror that the eagle had seized their old acquaintance, the dwarf, and was going to carry him off. The children, full of pity, at once took tight hold of the little man and pulled against the eagle so long that at last he let his treasure go. As soon as the dwarf had recovered from his first fright, he cried with his shrill voice, Could you not have done it more carefully? You dragged at my brown coat so that it is all torn and full of holes. 
you helpless, clumsy creatures. Then he took up a sack full of precious stones and slipped away again under the rock into his hole. The girls, who by this time were used to his thanklessness, went on their way and did their business in the town. As they crossed the pasture again on their way home, they surprised the dwarf who had emptied out his bag of precious stones in a clean spot and had not thought that anyone would come there so late. The evening sun shone upon the brilliant stones. They glittered and sparkled with all colours so beautifully that the children stood still and looked at them. Why do you stand gaping there? cried the dwarf, and his ashen grey face became copper red with rage. He was going on with his bad words when a loud growling was heard, and a black bear came trotting towards them out of the forest. The dwarf sprang up in a fright, but he could not get to his cave, for the bear was already close. Then, in the dread of his heart, he cried, Dear Mr. Bear, spare me, I will give you all my treasures. Look, the beautiful jewels lying there. Grant me my life. What do you want with such a slender little fellow as I? You would not feel me between your teeth. Come, take these two wicked girls. They are tender morsels for you, fat as young quails. For mercy's sake, eat them. The bear took no heed of his words, but gave the wicked creature a single blow with his paw, and he did not move again. The girls had run away, but the bear called to them, Snow White and Rose Red, do not be afraid, wait, I will come with you. Then they knew his voice and waited, and when he came up to them, suddenly his bear skin fell off. And he stood there, a handsome man, clothed all in gold. I am a king's son, he said, and I was bewitched by that wicked dwarf who had stolen my treasures. I have had to run about the forest as a savage bear until I was freed by his death. Now he has got his well-deserved punishment. Snow White was married to him and Rose Red to his brother, and they divided between them the great treasure which the dwarf had gathered together in his cave. The old mother lived peacefully and happily with their children for many years. She took the two rose trees with her, and they stood before her window, and every year bore the most beautiful roses, white and red. Grimm's Household Tales Translated by Margaret Hunt, read by Paul Martin This audio book and its underlying text is in the public domain Number 163 The Wise Servant How fortunate is the master, and how well all goes in his house When he has a wise servant who listens to his orders And does not obey them, but prefers following his own wisdom a clever John of this kind was once sent out by his master to seek a lost cow. He stayed away a long time, and the master thought, Faithful John 
does not spare any pains over his work. As, however, he did not come back at all, the master was afraid that some trouble had found him and set out himself to look for him. He had to search a long time, but at last he perceived the boy who was running up and down a large field. Now, dear John, said the master, when he had got up to him, have you found the cow which I sent you to seek? No, master, he answered, I have not found the cow, but then I have not looked for it. Then what have you looked for, John? Something better, and that, luckily, I have found. What is that, John? Three blackbirds, answered the boy. And where are they? asked the master. I see one of them, I hear the other, and I am running after the third, answered the wise boy. Take example by this. Do not trouble yourselves about your masters or their orders, but rather do what comes into your head and pleases you, and then you will act just as wisely as prudent John.'